Adventure Guys, the podcast for humans and dogs. I'm Eric the Human. And I'm Nick the Human. It's great to see you guys, or hear from you, or talk to you guys again. I guess that's the proper <laughs> thing, that verb that we're doing, proper action. Eric, yeah. how are you today? All right. Uh, the Saturday morning thing, working out for me, I think. That's good. Um, I'd like to report back. For anyone who listened to the last one where Eric said, Nick, you should listen to our episodes. It'll help you be better at podcasting. And you know what? I did. I listened to our, uh, well, at least half of our last episode so far as I've been <laughs> been running and trying to get into shape around town here in Austin. And I think... Well, uh, what do you, you think? Was that any good? Yeah, we're pretty good. I'm pretty happy <laughs> about it. I was like, you, you, really, you really are good. Some of those theme songs I'd missed were great. You're you're really good at talking on air. I'm gonna get better at it too. All right. Well, glad glad you're you're hearing some of the some of the music for the first time. <laughs> it's good. I was like, damn, these songs are great. Eric, you rule. <laughs> Did you hear my iced coffee in the mic? Yeah, I've got some English breakfast tea that I'm drinking. Nice. Yeah, th- I got this. Sean and I love going around trying all the different coffee shops in Austin. There's some really great ones. Try Hard Coffee is our favorite. Open during the pandemic. We've met the owners. They seem to employ local musicians. Everyone there is really fucking cool. And it's it's hip. All right. We just went to find a new place around the corner called Genuine Joe's. And now this this cold brew is just as good. They're not as hip in there. It feels more of like an old school Austin establishment of what you picture of like a late 90s Austin feel. Okay. But the one thing that's weird about it is that the clientele is odder. Like there's some real old Austin heads in there. I went in there and I was analyzing the score for Pet Sounds based off of our last talk. As um, one does. As one does. Trying to figure out Brian Wilson's <laughs> use of uh, of harmony. And um, and I'm in there just looking. I'm like, okay, oh, this is a de-augmented. And I just hear each customer is just coming in. And just saying weird, outdated stuff that you don't, that you shouldn't be hearing someone say. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, like how are you doing? I'm doing good, sweetie. I'm here for you to give me a little bit of a pick me up. I, I was just like, it's oh, like no. a fifty year old guy, and it's you know like a twenty four year old barista, and I'm just like, it didn't seem malicious, but it's weird. <laughs> and there was just a lot of interactions. A lot of interactions like that um and i it was just making me think i was like that the person's good they probably just need to learn more but you know eric what do you make of this that uh, could we really be at some sort of cultural inflection point i know last summer during the whole like awakening around about race and what it means to to have a racial identity in america was coming up but more and more I, it, it does make me think i'm like could this be like the second sixties right now or are there, you know, we can just see so many people fighting it and the, the progress feels so slow compared to that of the sixties, which was lightning quick, like in the matter of a few years, 
lots of things felt like they were changing. But I was like, man, I can, you can really just feel the generational divides now, I think, more than ever. Well, related to the 60s and that white people like you are just being forced to pay attention to it for the first time in a while. Oh, well, no, that's true. That's what you mean. Well, no, okay. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's true. Through that lens, I'm like, the 60s, like Great Cultural Awakening or whatever, it's like, what I'm saying is, is that, is the white mass population going to wake up and, and change what they believe? Um, it, which is like, a, again, like kind of a myopic way to look at the... It's like all about the white masses. So like any sort of if progress, yes, has to do with white people like me um, waking up to it. But but you know what I'm getting at? Like I just and it's not even even about race sometimes, but just about the way that you you treat other people and gender and sexuality and all these all these things just going around. I just like interacting and seeing people that are a little bit older. I'm like, you don't even you, you know, I'm getting that right, Eric. Yeah, well, th of course, the big issue that's happening here in New York right now is Cuomo finally resigned right. for being a piece of shit sexual predator. And that, that was part um, of where I was going with this, yeah. And just hearing the opinions, the unsolicited opinions of every fucking stupid boomer that, like, has some, like, nuance to, to you know, interpret about the situation that they feel is important for them to shout at everyone else around them. That's uh, been kind of shitty. Just like being around 70-year-olds that oh. obviously haven't learned anything since the 60s. Like, they saw the 60s. And they, uh, they thought it was done and over with. And they don't have to learn anything new ever again. Um, and I don't think they're going to. I'm cynical about it. But <laughs> I think that generation just, they're finished learning. Yeah. They're done with it. And they don't want to bother themselves any anymore with with having to grow as a person yeah like if they never grew between ages 30 and 70 why should they have to grow between ages 70 and whenever the fuck they right <laughs> get the hell out of here totally i guess what i'm getting at is and this is where i was trying to go was that between the ages of 30 and 70 it didn't seem like people really had to grow and change that much but now in these last couple of years Things are coming up and people are being asked to re-examine the way they've lived their lives and be like, hey, do you want to change? And most of them are saying no. But it feels like one of the the ways that it's finally like it's the questions that needed to be posed are being posed to 80 year old boomers. You know, I think what's hard about it is, is that if you, you know, are that old and you've had that kind of programming, like that social DNA, like given to you that, hey, this is kind of just something that happens and you kind of have to to deal with it and it's and all that stuff and that and you've had to deal with it and your friends have had to deal with it and you've rationalized it then that's just kind of how the world is and it but it does boggle my mind that you would see something like that and be like yeah it shouldn't have to be that way like if we could have it so weird guys aren't like he's you hear some of the stuff where he's like touching women's bellies did you hear <laughs> that was like some of the specifics of it were so were so odd where he's just it's like that's that's weird. Like I get that that's not like molesting whatever, but I'm like, these are who touches someone's belly. I, I'm just like giving him even the benefit of the doubt of <coughs> some of it. I'm like, you shouldn't be doing that. That's a weird. That's a no. H how often do you touch someone's stomach, Eric? 
Never. 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 <laughs> you never do that. And and then he was talking about how like, you know, he I'm I'm touchy, I'm intimate. I learned this from my mom. It's like, "Oh, okay." So now there's there's blame event. I don't know, we could go down this rabbit hole. There's I'm just I was just like even looking at the surface level things that he's saying, I was like still gross. Um <coughs> anyway, I hope people I don't know. It just sometimes it it this this feels pessimistic in which this conversation that we're having. But I look around sometimes and I'm like, I you can see evolving opinions in the way people are are behaving even from a few years ago and i thought about that just now before watching this episode because finn says a very creepy thing um to the big jello monster when he's trying to get oh the, yeah i noticed that i was out. like oh what the fuck yeah, why <laughs> did you say that finn and i guess this was just really making me think like this is <coughs> quote unquote like a progressive sh- like this is a a progressive show through and through all the themes everything they have to say yet just a number of years ago, they're making a really gross joke like this that that feels really bad. And it was just making me like, huh, like even in this arena where we've really made some strides. Yeah. You know, I, I woke up today to um to see that then did you see what who the next guest is gonna be on Krista Makes a Podcast? No. It's the singer from Buck Cherry. Going to talk about that song. No. Yeah. The only song that that they have. And it's just like What's that song is, again? I don't even want to talk about the song. Okay. <laughs> I can just word fuck in the title, right? Yeah. It's it's just it's gross. And I'm like, why the and whenever the song came out like fifteen years ago? whatever like there i mean it was gross then like it in in like a overtly gross way and i think that's why people liked it uh but especially now why are we why are we i mean i don't know anything about this guy the guy that wrote the song but why are we giving the song itself more of a platform (laughs) in 2021 i I was i was disappointed to see that uh from chris to makes He's been like he's liked some of my comments when I've thrown up a fire emoji on his Instagram. Maybe I could uh, reply and say, "I hope you, I hope you hold him to task for these lyrics." <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and you know, I I don't want to like Stereo talk shit here. about my Sky heroes yeah. all day. Um, but I don't know if you saw anything about the new Big D and the Kids Table album. And um, I read. I, I read some of the interview uh, or the the press release for David McQueen and I got a I got a big eye roll out of it. Yeah, saying that like the songs were inspired by comedians like Ricky Gervais and Bill Burr and Dave Chappelle. It was really it was teetering on a a line that was really upsetting to me where he was talking about like the thought police and political correctness and I was like, "Oh god." Right? Like it was like on that yeah. line and I was like, "Yeah." He's like, yeah, these these are the only people who are like really pushing us past what what people are saying you can talk about and think about, and it's, I just don't want to be. And I was just like, oh no 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 no. Why do these old white guys still think this way? (laughs) Because they haven't learned anything in the last twenty years. Yeah, I mean, stopped learning. I yeah I I, the thing the, the only way I can rationalize, and I've probably said this on the podcast, so. 
it's like, and this is what I was getting at with the boomers when you're talking about being 70 or 80 and being confronted with new things is that if you've bought into the lie and it is it and you've, and when you're going through that phase in your youth where you're trying to figure out how the world works and you kind of have to kill a part of your naive self in order to assimilate into a gross world, which is what has been synonymous with becoming an adult over the last forever, you know, especially like in modern American times, that's part of it. And I think people resign themselves to this is how the world needs to work. And when somebody comes along and is trying to look at how to make it better, they're met with, well, you're just naive. Oh, when you grow up, you'll change. Oh, you'll see that's not how things work. Oh, things aren't possible. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you just like convince yourself that you have to live this shitty way. And I I think that <clears throat> if you buy into that long enough and or the world treats you like that long enough, then when you're a little bit older and the next generation comes and they're now you and they're trying to do things better again, it's like a cycle or something. And and you've you've invested so much into this shitty world that to let it go would then have to be an admission of fault that you didn't have to be living in this dumb way. Um, you know, what's, what's, right. upset, I, I, that's what I think about it. And it, 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 cause it'd be really depressing. Imagine to be like 50 and you've, you know, it's like, it's, it's not, it's like sad. Like, you know, when you hear about people who are like discovering their sexuality at like 60 and they never like let themselves like discover who they truly were but there's i think there's minor versions of that all around with people in their own identities and wants and things because they were trying to just conform and figure out a way and it makes sense to move through this world and the humility and grace it takes to step back at a later age and go you know what even though it feels like a waste of time i'm gonna pull myself out of this version of myself that i've created and all i've invested in because i want to live in a better way and and those people i think are like the coolest like that's the old person that i hope to be but i think there's some people that they just can't do that like you don't have you know what i mean and it, it and it's sad yeah. to see <clears throat> what well, i think i think we've had a conversation like this off air once before we're talking about like people like our dads right if we yeah. want to if we want to especially yeah. get very late nineties angsty yeah. about our dads. Um, <laughs> but like the boomer straight white man, patriarch of the nuclear family family, like that was the target demographic for America for the last like 60 years. Like, like someone like my dad, Everything has been geared towards him. Exactly. Everything has been engineered specifically for that person. That generation. Since the yeah. six since the sixties, when that huge overhaul came over, it ushered in a new generation that everyone wanted to target, be it, you know, entertainment, but even like advertisements, like the cult the entire culture has been geared towards the boomer generation since they like came over and just took shit over in the 60s at first in a very revolutionary way and then uh, eventually it starts to feel a bit more regressive but yeah it, it's, so it's it's yeah yeah so to question any component of that entire culture is to is to question everything about every aspect of their lives that they've lived over the last 60 years mm -hmm. so i get that it's a big step but yeah and then i think it's fucking annoying it's really up with it <laughs> it's really annoying I, I totally hear you. And I think that's a really great point, Eric. 
and it's it's about that whole gen- generation. You know, I love my dad, but and it's hard to be even mad. I, I think it's I think it's hard to be mad even about at people sometimes individually because you just see the way that all these pieces are playing out in the larger cultural landscape, and it's like all anyone's trying to do is just like how the fuck do I get through this maze of life in this like American system, and you just like start going, and then it has like these gross bad side effects. Um, on all sorts of people, like the people I'm hearing at the coffee shop saying these weird things. I'm just like, God, but it's like, well, you fucking learn that from somewhere. But what I was going to say, Eric was, is it, it's really disappointing when you hear someone like in punk or someone like that, who's, who's going down these really bad roads, which we've talked about too, which is like, what is with this, this new path of old punk rockers where you get to like late, like middle age or, and then all of a sudden you start going right. Um, I think that it might be due to like you know gen x is a really probably a like a weird generation to be a part of because you were just in the shadow of these boomers and you felt like you you know you weren't like weren't seen or heard right that's the kind of the whole gen x thing like you were told you didn't matter like the parents didn't pay attention to you like you were underrepresented in popular culture you were just sort of like an underdog coming up against things and the slacker generation and all, all all these all these things and i feel like it instills like this weird like um thing in, in in some of those people where you're kind of a contrarian or the world's not fair like these kinds of like weird like things and and what's cool now i think about like and, and it, it was just like this whole narrative i felt like it was almost like a whole narrative between each generation and then the millennials have a bit of a different thing, but we also have like a reverence for Gen X in boomer culture where it's like wrapped up into us and we appreciate it. And w- the one thing that's cool about now, I feel like is that Gen Z, it feels like they don't really give a shit about any of it. <laughs> like when I was like coming up as a millennial, I had a great reverence and still do for like the Gen X model. I'd be like, Oh, I can't like this band because they're ripping off this band that Gen X like, like and the Gen Xers are telling me I got to listen to Fugazi or whatever because and this band sucks or this and that and now like Gen Z's coming along they don't give a shit about what any of anybody has to say um, and they don't care about like boomer conventions and they're just they're doing their things and living it in a, in a great way and I think that's cool and I think that's what's lending to this feeling of the 60s that I was trying to get at where it's like oh it's a new generation that doesn't seem to give a shit you know yeah <clears throat> but very disappointing to see um Gen Xers doing that stuff. I'm very, I'm, I'm disappointed to see, to see that, um, on the Chris podcast, but I like the podcast still and I'm listening. Yeah. I don't know. I'm trying I listened to, to uh, <clears throat> the Mike Park episode. Oh, cool. Uh, recently. And, uh, it's, it's kind of weird, like hearing people talk because they did a skank and pickle song from like forever ago that's mm-hmm. like not even a good song and it's not even a song that mike park likes anymore well understandably but it's what chris makes wanted to <laughs> talk about and just hearing them talk about the time like back then in the early 90s when people were getting into the ska punk scene and like it still hadn't really coalesced into anything you know certainly not anything mainstream but even anything logical that like people knew what they were doing in terms of like, this is a punk rock scene. This is what it stands for. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds good. I, 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 I like it. And 
I listened to the Jay Navarro episode from the Suicide Machines. I haven't checked that one out yet, but I plan to. It's cool. Um, and I, it's cool that it exists for this niche of music consumer, which we fall in. But it is a little bit weird to be hearing people, you know, who are in their late 40s or 50, talk about a song that they wrote in their early 20s. And they're talking about it. And it's just, it's real memory laney. And sometimes they don't have the clearest memory. And they don't seem like, like enthused to be talking about it. And it's like, I was listening to it. I was like, wouldn't it be cool to be, if this was an interview with 24 year old Jay Navarro, who wrote this recently and is like really excited about like, Oh yeah. And then check out this part. Oh yeah. That, and that, and this is more like going back and he's like, yeah, I haven't really like listened to this song in years. He's like, is don't, doesn't there, isn't there an outro on this song? And then Chris is like, yeah, there is, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> Oh man. It is what it is, but I guess I'm like that's kind of what makes Sonic Exploder cool is that people seem to be excited to like show off their new thing and I wish there was a little bit more of that energy in the in the podcast, you know. I never I never really got into Sonic Exploder because they were focusing a lot on mainstream artists mm-hmm. and I know that the process for those kinds of artists is very different than my process, very different from independent artists where they have producers lined up like from the beginning even if they're going to write their song on their own by mm-hmm. the time they they get into the studio like there's a lot of other hands that touch the project um and the, and in that way they they kind of get like a little melodramatic about talking about their art yeah and like the meaning behind it and it's like this is a fucking four chord diatonic progression like you're really going to go on for like five, ten minutes just talking about how you came up with this chord progression. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's a little I, self-aggrandizing. Uh, yeah. You know what I did listen to recently what? that was a little bit more interesting um, was Mark Marin's interview with Rick Rubin. Oh, I listened to that too. I really liked the thing that he talked about where he, w- he said he was working with an artist that was struggling with the lyrics and they couldn't uh, like they were trying to figure out the pieces of a puzzle uh, because they wrote the melody and then they were trying to squeeze in words that fit the melody. And Rick Rubin was just trying to be like, you're never going to find words that resonate with you emotionally. If that's what you're doing, if you're just trying to find the words that match like the cadence of, of, of the music like that, go home and just write a shit ton of lyrics or just words. Don't worry about lyrics. Just write a shit ton of pages about what you're feeling. Get it out of you and onto a page. It doesn't have to be organized in any way. And then they come back with just unorganized prose and they start picking out little parts, pruning, be like, well, this line really means something. So let's put this in here and then maybe like change the syllable on that or whatever. And that's exactly how I write lyrics and how I write songs. And Amazing. this is apparently a new technique that Rick Rubin just thought of like recently with this with this artist that he was saying. It's like, yeah, in all the decades I've been doing this, like this is just something that I figured out that worked really well for this particular artist. Uh, and I think I'm going to use it again in the future. I was like, well, fucking yes. Like, I know. <laughs> here's, I, some, here's some validation for, for my own process. So that made me happy. <laughs> I love that. I, I, am, I heard that. I was like, you, you just thought of that? Because <laughs> I was like, I've tried doing that but i was also like yeah i was like some eric you've done that you've talked about that um i've i mean it's definitely a thing i've i've written songs i've 
I've been demoing out an album and uh, sometimes you go to the lyrics and it does, you're like, is this what I want to say? Or was this, does this just sound like a good lyric? Like, does it fit the rhyme scheme in it? You know what I mean? Like it sounds like a song lyric, but is it really right. what I mean? Is it really like, what I want to say? Right. And, like, do you, do you need to spend the extra line just to rhyme high with sky? Right. Or down with ground? Like, yeah. If if you take a line to to make that rhyme, you're just you're just using filler. That's or, all it is. Or it, that line reads a little nastier. Like, do you really mean it that mean, or did you? Is that word just rhyming with another word? So that's why you chose destruction. Like, do you really mean destruction, or do you mean a minor inconvenience? <laughs> you know. And it's like I've had to ask myself this question. That's cool. That was a good episode. I like the Rick Rubin podcast. I know some people don't like. Rick Rubin, he's a little. Yeah, I I can understand some people's versions of it, but overall, I really like him as a presence and the Broken Record podcast because I think it's it's cool um, discussions around music and it and the discussions are always around music itself. What I I think context for music is important, but a lot of times in modern day like music writing and critical thought. There's so much energy and time spent on where it fits into the current landscape of what's happening, which obviously is important. But sometimes you can just get caught up and so be like, this doesn't feel like like perfect for what's happening right now, you know? And people are getting really excited like because the production's not right or it's this kind of person who's doing it versus this kind of person. It's not stylistically in vogue. Um, and sometimes stuff that's really perfect for the moment that's not so great. And it's just like, it's all, it's all getting caught up in the aesthetics and style and what's happening and relevance and context. And I feel like what's cool. And this also helps with sometimes, you know, with the Krista makes thing, but like when you're interviewing people and it's not necessarily like the hippest person right now, but maybe five, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you, you get to divorce from the context and talk just a bit more about the music itself or why did you make it or, or whatever. And, I think that's cool. Yeah, I so I don't don't know much about Rick Rubin in general. Um, he seems to be a little bit of a cagey kind of guy. He doesn't mm -hmm. really do a lot of press or reveal much about himself. I didn't know he had a podcast actually. Um, he, but I, I've always sort of wondered because it it d doesn't seem like he really gets into like the craft or like the technical aspects of things. He seems to like be more of like a high concept sort of philosophical guy uh, high I'm concept like, feeling guy where he sits like his thing is he comes and he sits in the back of the room and he meditates he closes his eyes he listens and then he makes suggestions but he doesn't know how to work a board he doesn't know eq he doesn't know gear but he ha he he works with people who know the fuck out of that stuff like right really and what a fucking boomer privilege it must be to have built a career on just sitting in the back of the room and telling people how things make you feel well, now and not knowing anything about how to like technically produce a real record. Right. And I think that's some people's image. Slipknot famously was like, yeah, we got we got a uh, Rick Ruman to do it. But he just he would he was only there like 30 percent of the time he would come and show up and listen, give us notes and then leave or just sit in the back of the room. And we'd be like, well, the fuck is this guy producing our record or is he just giving us notes every once in a while? And Eric, I would say. The, the hard the only hard thing about that like i hear what you're saying that's a boomer privileged thing to do right because right now if you want to be a producer you have you're a jack of all trades like 
the, the modern model is that you have to be the songwriter, musician, engineer, mixer, producer, and do it all. Like that is what is is happening in the movement now. The only thing that's hard with Rick Rubin is that then you just go to his discography and you just look and the run that he was on. Like he did get his pick of the litter because once he ascended to the top, but dude, the guy just slammed classic records across genres for like a long time. And yeah. So it's like, Hey, there's something to be said for that whole, the mo- like, it, it seems like a privileged model, I just, but it, it did work. I, I, I kind of, I kind of, whether or not it's true, I want to believe that it was more of a right place, right time kind of thing in like the early eighties or something where, especially where hip hop, like, you know, the beastie boys, like nobody really knew what it was supposed to be or what they were supposed to be doing. And he just kind of happened to be there also and was like, well, I have an idea about what this could be. And because he's just a fucking white guy people listen to him about what hip-hop should be you know <laughs> yeah and he m- managed to parlay that into working with higher profile artists and you know just kept momentum building um but it to me it really feels like or i want it to feel like at least he, he like luck was just such a huge factor yeah in in I, shaping that i would say so but dude like pull open the rick rubin discography on wiki and it's just like fucking insano mode this guy did like here I'll, I'll pull up some of these you can oh yeah here we go rick rubin discography and it's like dude so he did all the hip-hop stuff and bc boys and he did slayer rain and blood he produced that album he produced l cool j run dmc danzig um but then he had like great ideas where like the most the most legendary comedy albums of all time andrew dice clay when he was at his oh, his yeah. top he got him to do that uh, one where he's bombing. Okay, yeah. Slayer, The Black Crows, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood, Sex, Magic, <laughs> Sir Mix-a-Lot, um, Flipper, Danzig, Joan Jett, and The Black Crows, Tom Petty, um, lots of Chili Peppers, Nine Inch Nails, ACDC, oh, here are we. Oh, yeah, he did the System of a Down, all their records. Um, or not all of them, but a lot of the first ones. I don't know, dude. You just look at some of these and you're just like, fuck, this is like so insane. Um, Are you watching that show Dave on FX? Um, um, I watched the first season. I haven't done the second one yet. First season was really good. If you liked the first season, yeah. the second season's a little bit different. Um, it seems to follow a slightly different character arc mm-hmm. for, for the main guy. Um, but there's an episode where Rick Rubin plays a huge part, oh, even though like he's never actually shown. Like I don't even know if they had his permission to be using his name, but uh, you never actually see Rick Rubin on screen. Uh, but apparently, he winds up producing records for for Lil Dicky in this show, um, and it's a really trippy episode uh, because it just sort of plays into the enigmatic quality of this guy where like, yeah, you don't see him on screen, but he's like manipulating the way that the character's thinking and and approaching music. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really weird, but yeah, I just, I don't know. It, it seems like something I should dig into deeper because there's a lot there, but also like, I don't know if I 
want to like revere this person. Like I can probably just be like, yeah, I guess he's a good producer given everything that's happened in the music industry since, you know, producers started doing the things that he does. But like, I don't, I don't think that's a career path that I want to emulate as a producer. That's for sure. No, no. I mean, definitely a lot of right place, right time. And you can't, no one could ever probably do what he does again, but he's made people try to, I think people sort of misunderstand what a producer is supposed to do in 2021. Uh And like, they get uh, like this sort of high and mighty view of like, you know, I mean, I don't even think people know what producers are in general. Nine out of 10 musicians don't know what a producer is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then, you know, you get the image of Rick Rubin as a guy that's held up as like the, you know, biggest producer. And what does he even really do? He just makes the issue worse and less and less, you know. Well, I don't know about that because I think what's cool about Rick Rubin is that he clearly comes in and uses whatever he has and asks questions and concepts to help them like make a really good version of what they do. Right. Like there's not a Rick Rubin sound. Like you can't put on a record and go, Oh, that sounds like the Rick Rubin record. Like you don't, cause they all sound so drastically different. So I think it's, I think what's cool about that is that he's, it's, you know, I think a lot what you're talking about, a lot of people like feel that they're the ones in control or they're the master, they're the guru and and that is the 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 probably the not good part about Rick Rubin, but it's like I think to be a good producer you shouldn't be so concerned with your signature sound or making it sound like me or I I need ownership. It should be about the artist, right? Like I'm gonna help you make the best record you can, um, <clears throat> right? Yeah, I don't know. I I guess he he's sort of like a more of a artistic coach. Yeah, <laughs> at least in in relation to like what modern producers usually are. Yeah, it's true. But he's made some good records. I'm just saying that they can't totally discount it. Um, although I think people just look to archetypes way too much in general across all things. Uh, I'm guilty. Yeah. As I mean, I, I also think it's just weird that he's only a producer and he's not an artist and he doesn't write songs. <laughs> that That's, that's weird. Cause it's just, he never, I guess he never learned to really write songs and yet he's telling people how to write songs and mm-hmm. that kind of irks me Yeah, as a songwriter and as a producer myself. So <laughs> yeah, I get that. But I think it is, I think it's valuable sometimes to like have somebody with the ear that isn't that like who is, has a little, has a different ear. Like you ever show it's, it's interesting to show music to somebody who's not a songwriter and get their feedback and they'll focus on different things. And it's like, yeah, I hate that. I hate that. I think it's, I mean, there is a value to it, but it's certainly not as high as people will constantly talk about it. You know, know, I think it's overvalued. I think it's uh, like the, the layman's point of view is I'm okay. So I'm definitely taking more of a formally trained classical composer point of view on, on this topic, but there's a there's a whole um article from like i don't know forever ago it was written by Milton Babbitt who's like extremely esoteric electronic avant-garde composer that basically wrote music that was impossible to listen to mm-hmm. <laughs> nobody liked it but he wrote this 
this uh, this article called "Who Cares If You Listen," and it's like, well, if, if you don't know how to write music, why the hell does your opinion matter on on whether whether or not this is good? I mean, you, like, it, it, I guess it sort of comes down to people saying something that they don't like is is bad. Like, mm-hmm. well how are you qualified to determine whether it's good or bad? I mean, go ahead and not like it. Like, then don't listen. I don't care. Yeah. But you you somehow think that you have an opinion that has value in terms of discerning the quality of this work? How, where'd, you, where'd you get that kind of arrogance from? Uh-huh. I mean, it's a well, very arrogant point of view yeah. to begin with, but it, I don't know. I, I, uh, I guess I don't, I guess I, I don't think there should be prerequisite to, 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 to explaining what, how a piece of music hits you, you know, where I, I think the value in the layman's point is to be like, if you hear something and be like, now, how does that feel to you? Like, what is that lyric to you? And hearing how it affects them or doesn't affect them and being like, okay, well then am I communicating what I want to be communicating in my music in the best way possible? And yeah, so I, I agree with this to the extent that, it's valuable for a musician to be able to interpret uh, a non-musician's reaction, but the non-musician is not qualified to interpret their reaction themselves. And I think that, like there's a lot of uh, this this weird filter of not knowing how to communicate your own reaction to art uh, that then comes off as judgmental in ways that you're not qualified to to be. Uh, so, but yes, like noticing and, and interpreting someone's reaction is important. Um, so like, yeah, okay. Clearly people don't like this. Now I don't care wh- like what they say about why they don't like it because they don't probably don't understand why they don't like it. But now as an artist, it's my job to try and understand why they don't like it. Yeah. So, so it sounds like what the big deal is, is that the the layman listener we will call them hasn't put in in your mind probably maybe hasn't put in the critical thought as to what defines their taste and what they like and don't like because they haven't put in the time towards being a composer or songwriter which is like you know you're just pouring over all these details to feed and, and and developing your taste so then when then they give that feedback it's sort of like well i don't know if i can really trust that feedback because you don't necessarily know what you're talking about. Is that a good summation of it? Like you don't, you don't know what you like and you don't like. Right. Their feedback requires interpretation. Right. Sure. And they are not qualified to interpret it themselves. Right. You know, the, the, the hard, the hard thing that I will say though, for if you go to some of these, um, somebody who's a, like in the weeds and more knowledgeable, which has happened to me is you show someone a song and the feedback you get is about the EQ of the song or is about the way it was recorded or is about that's just not an interesting chord progression. And you kind of go, yeah, but you're losing sight of the big pick. Like, how does it make you feel? What do you think of this and the lyrics and stuff? And sometimes people who are so in the weeds are like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's fine. But like they're really into these nuances, which also has its value. But then some, it's, it's kind of like a balancing. Like I think like sometimes a different network of, of feedback might be valuable for different purposes. Oh, I mean, that's why art is hard. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's equal parts craft and art. Yeah. Um, 
you know, having this conversation frequently uh, working in a studio now more often is that there's a lot of people that are trained in engineering, but not trained in music. There's a lot of people that are trained in music and not trained in engineering. And you kind of need both of those things if you're, if you're going to be working on the recording side of, of music. Uh, yeah. So, you know, the most talented people are, are those who start on either side of that and are able to bridge the gap. But, I mean, it's, it's very challenging to do that. Uh, very few people have, train, have actual training in both of those sides of it. So that's why, the, you know, we, the best people are rare. <laughs> yep. Good way to say it. Well, I don't, I don't see, I don't think people appreciate how rare that is. The whole package. Yeah. Yeah. Or then they get really like in on one part that might not be as high and you're like, yeah, look at everything that they're traversing. I think it's a good, that's a good point of view. But that's why you need teams sometimes. That's why you need maybe, maybe what you need as is, is the Rick Rubin because you've got the, uh, you've got the other side covered. You know, you know what I'm saying? If you've got, it's about finding what your holes are in your own psyche. Um, you know, talk about the Mars Volta all the time on here, but you know, their D last in the Comatorium is the, the Rick Rubin record and it is everybody's favorite record. My least favorite. Really? Yep. I will proudly wear that badge. Oh. They've only, they only got better in their career. And I think a lot of people, you think Bedlam- got into the Mars Volta through through avenues that seemed more logical going into Deloused, yeah. like through the more like prog rock, like post screamo kind of route, and then they immediately weren't doing that anymore. Um, but you'd put you'd put like Bedlam and Goliath over Deloused in the Combatorium. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. It's not even close for me. I, Bedlam is also mixed. It the way it's recorded is so difficult to listen to. I can only listen to four songs at a time. I, I like it. It's, it's, it's very aggressive. I, I can't, I got it on vinyl and we, my house, we would listen to three songs and I would just be like, we all have headaches. We need to take a break <laughs> on this. Uh, well, I guess it's a matter of taste then, but uh, conventional wisdom is that D Laust is in their top couple. Um, I think it's their least artistic. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I would disagree with that. It's <laughs> Nocturnicate. You think Nocturnicate's a more artistic album than D. Louse? Yes. Yes. Why? They're taking more risks. I don't, I think you're not looking at it in the proper context. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that's true. D. Louse seems very much in the fold. It seems very like, when was that album? 2005? Three. Three. Right, yeah. It seems very much like in that tradition of like what those proggy kind of bands were. What, were what like proggy bands out. are you thinking of? Like it's sort it's sort of like the next step, like out of like where if, if your mainstream was like Coheed and Cambria. But this is before Coheed. Before when when was second stage? Two thousand three or I think. That wasn't like two thousand two. Maybe maybe it was two thousand two. Like a lot of those equal vision bands. Yeah, but that's that to me is all kind of post Volta. To me, I, well, I, it seems like they were sort of forming in the same primordial um, yeah. post Screamo goop. Yeah. Yeah, I guess this is 2002 is second stage. 
and they were already in Mars Volta was kind of doing their thing. Yeah. It's it's definitely the most like um at the drive-in. Yeah. I mean and that makes sense. It's the most chronologically linked to mm-hmm. at the drive-in. I I feel like they only started moving farther away from that. Uh which I appreciated. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I think it's perfectly logical for at the drive-in fans to think DeLouse is their favorite Mars Volta album. Yeah, and that's precisely why it's my least favorite. I mean, I love at the drive-in, but I like the Mars Volta a lot more. Right, but but you you like it because it's further away. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, interesting. That's the first time I've ever heard that opinion, but I haven't spent a lot of time on the message boards. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that the um, D. Laust is the. Uh, I mean, the point I was going to make about the Rick Rubin thing was is is you know I guess this matches up with your your logic though is that you have somebody who's the band who's like taking care of the craft and all the intricate details and all these things that and the story and these minute details to have somebody there to counterbalance and just be like, well, let's think of the big picture. Like, how is this person hearing it? And how is this and that and and like, what's the vocal doing? What does it sound like? And kind of taking this other viewpoint might make for the sum of the parts for a better whole. Now, and you is sort of like, well, I don't care. Like you're like, take get that viewpoint out of there because it only leads to better shit down the line. Um, but I guess I was trying to say like, well, it, it made it into a maybe the most well-rounded uh, record and one that's the most approachable. For most people, but you're yes. sort of like I don't give I don't, a shit about that. I I generally do not prefer quote unquote well rounded records, mm-hmm. especially uh, from artists that have an extensive and and weird catalog like the Mars Volta, mm-hmm. um, like Omar in, mm-hmm. in general. Um, I prefer albums that are a little bit more focused on like a certain direction, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, which I I think increasingly happened with the Mars Volta's catalog. Like Octahedron, at first I you know first listen I wasn't super into it, but the vibe of Octahedron I grew to love so much, and it's like so unique to that album. I don't yeah. think a lot of people like Octahedron, but I fucking love that album now. Yeah, it's good. I love, yeah, but it it's too. it's got a very self-contained like artistic vibe to it, um, whereas. Laust moves around a little bit more and covers some more bases. Yeah, but I just, I mean, Octahedron's a fine album, and it's like a good album, but DeLoust feels like more of like a huge artistic, sweeping artistic statement. Like, there's 13, 14 minute songs on DeLoust, which there aren't on on the other one. Like, the sound design is cool. Like, the guitar, so- there's guitar solos. There's not really guitar solos on Octahedron that are like cool. And just like, I don't know it, the the mix of like punk and Fela Cootie and prog and salsa. It's like it it just feels sort of like that's why it felt far more um, like ri- like for for the um, for the time. It's incredibly risk takey. It did like I don't I don't think it is like a safe album by any means in the context in which it came out. I think in hindsight, yeah, I mean, like it, this is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Always have to like calibrate that everything the Mars Volta has ever done, 
you know, is light years away from anything else in the mainstream. <laughs> like yeah. if you're going to talk about like the Mars Volta catalog, like ins insularly, okay, like there's, there's comparisons to be made, but anything that they've done is just so far out there from, from what else or everything else that was happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that was my, that was just my take, but you're, I appreciate your opinion. <laughs> I think my favorite's uh, Francis the Mute, but uh, that's okay. You know, I, I, I go back and forth. Um, I think Amputecture might be my favorite. A good one too. I really do not like the Bedlam and Grith record very much. And Nocturna Kids, it's cool. It's a cool record. I like them all. But uh, those two are definitely nestled. I, at the I think it's unfortunate that Nocturnicate was the last one because it felt like we were going to get something really awesome on the next album after that, which never happened. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that would have been cool. Um, want to talk about Adventure Time? <laughs> <laughs> Is that why we're here? <laughs> yeah, I get. Yeah, we've been at this for a while. Okay. Discussion. All right. So uh, we watched season one, episode eighteen, Dungeon. Yeah, is a is a good episode. It's a good early episode. I think you're still learning your ways around the the land of Ooh. You're learning around about the relationship between Finn and Jake, as Finn and Jake are learning about the relationship with each other. Um. <laughs> Sure. And yeah, they, you know, we, they come to gain as is shown in big, bold letters and gets its own title card, newfound respect for each other by the end of this episode. <laughs> this was still during the first season where they were uh, putting in these little title card gags. We had three of them on this episode. Yeah. Business Time was another episode where they do that. Mm -hmm. I think there's a couple other from the first season. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the first one we get is lunchtime. <laughs> yeah, lunchtime. <laughs> yeah, Jake's real concerned about his sandwich. But basically, they go to this dungeon that they're supposed to keep people out of per Princess Bubblegum. And Finn decides he's going to go down this dungeon and do it alone without Jake as a Needham. And increasingly, it becomes obvious that, hey, he really needs, like, Jake would be really useful and his help could be really useful in these situations because he's got blind spots that he doesn't see. Um, and he makes it all the way to the end and is meeting certain death before Jake shows up. And what has he found? But the same thing. Lots of obstacles that Jake that Finn would have been able to to conquer. Very interesting. Very interesting stuff. So they uh they find a newfound respect and um help each other to get out of there, along with Princess Bubblegum, really, who comes back and saves the day. Um and yeah, that's the that's the meat of this episode. But there's some fun stuff that happened in it. Um, you know, I, I would say in here is Princess Bubblegum's riding a swan that shoots lasers out of its eyes in this one, but not <laughs> yeah. the hawk. And I still prefer the hawk because we get the scree. Right. Yeah, the swan makes a, a few appearances. It, yeah, I mean, they're still figuring out exactly the mechanics of, of what's going on in this world. Uh, so I guess sometimes... PB rides a swan. Sometimes it's a hawk. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so then they go there. You know, this is the dungeon of, dungeon of the Crystal Eye, which I know this is a very video game inspired show, but I was like, that would be a great name for a video game. Dungeon of the Crystal Eye, if there was one. Um, but <laughs> um, 
Jake's eating his, this is just some of my highlights. Jake's eating a sandwich and he goes to open like a can or a bottle of seltzer or soda or something. And he makes his hand into a bottle opener, which really is, you know, more of a low key Jake transformation uh, morphing thing. But one of my favorites I've seen in quite a while. It's pretty inventive. Um, yeah, there were, there were a few examples of changing hands into tools in this episode. Yeah. And not then, always with success. Yeah. Um, not always with success. And I mean, the animation in general in this episode is feels a little bit different than what we get later on in the show. Like, especially once he gets into the dungeon and is encountering, encountering these different people, skeletons, spirits, things, monsters, whatever you want to call them. Um, are there, there, it's a little bit different in some of those, but cool. And, uh, you know, I'd say that, the most interesting character that he meets in this dungeon is this bobcat thing with a floating arm. And his power is that he has, quote, approximate knowledge, which is really funny. He calls him <laughs> Frank the Human. He's like, how did you almost come in here? He goes, I have approximate knowledge about many things. Um, and it's a gag that keeps coming back and really made me laugh. And there's... Um, yeah, it's a pretty meme-worthy scene. Yeah. Then there's... J- um, yeah, and... He gets scared off because he can smell Jake on Finn. And he's like, oh, yeah, I got to get out of here. Um, and then he comes to a door and there's he needs the key. He's like, Jake would make his hand into a key. So Finn tries and he can't do it. His hand gets all mangled like really grossly. Yeah. Um, but then he sees a, a key floating and it's in this like blob of jelly. Now, this is what we were getting at before. And because I, I want to bring up this quote. He goes to reach for this key. And he can't get it out. And he says to the Jello thing, Jello man, he says, don't flaunt it if you aren't going to give it up. Yeah. Which is sort of supposed to be like a ha-ha thing. Like that's what, that's what you say to a, a slutty girl or whatever. And in 2021, I'm just going to go ahead and say I don't want to hear Finn saying that. Nope. Uh, some quick mini miscellaneous mania is part of his little song there was censored in some countries the line where he says i want to have your babies oh yeah he's <laughs> i don't think they allowed that in australia and some other places <laughs> but they let that other line slide yeah which is worse yeah the, sometimes the the censorship choices don't always match up but shortly after that we get a good fin scream and we get a good couple fin screams dude there's a lot of fin screams in this episode actually man the it was near constant finn is screaming all the time in this episode yeah you know what? You know what I I I watched a few nights ago was Spider Man Two. Oh wow! <laughs> I loved that. I loved that. Uh, that when it came out, I thought it was at the a time. A lot of people did. A lot of people loved it at the time because the, the whole comic book renaissance hadn't started. Right? Like this was really like one of the first new ones. Yeah, I think uh, X Men was like the first of the modern superhero movie franchises, and yeah. Spider Man was was next to follow. Um, well, Batman too, Christopher Nolan's. Uh, that w- that started in two thousand five. Batman Begins. Yeah, yeah. Um, Spider Man Two was two thousand four. Um, the first mm-hmm. one was two thousand two. Anyways, I was watching Spider Man Two, and I just realized, man, people are screaming so fucking much all over this entire movie. It's just nothing but screaming. Crowds are just like screaming their heads off. Bloody murder. I don't think people actually do this. Like, this is a very dark, macabre kind of thing to notice, but 
in the last like several years that we have video footage of terrible things happening all over our country and the world, you don't hear as much screaming as we did in movies. <laughs> no. Like there's a lot of like surprise like noises that people sometimes make, but just the like the woman standing there screaming her head off, that doesn't actually happen. And yet this movie is just wall to wall screaming. I'm just like it 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 took me out of the viewing experience. Like, wait, uh, people just won't shut up. There's so much screaming in this freaking movie. <laughs> and then I watched this Adventure Time episode, and Finn is doing nothing but screaming the whole goddamn time. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, those those Spider Man movies too. It, it felt too like at the time that they were in their own way. Sam Raimi was trying to make them sort of comicy, like like feel. Like have moments that feel a bit like they could have come out of a comic book or out of a cartoon um, to have reverence. And I feel like that sort of that was an idea back then of like, what does it mean to heighten something to make it like a cartoon or a comic is I want like the panel of the old woman screaming, you know? Yeah, it it felt really weird. It felt kitschy, you know, yeah. campy in, in a way that was distracting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Finn's scream, it, yeah, it's it's definitely distracting. It's attention grabbing, but it's it is funny yeah, it and is funny. not in necessarily a campy way, in a sort of ironic way, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> that he's supposed to be like, especially in this episode where he's supposed to be like very headstrong and rushing into danger, and he's screaming this very high pitched scream the entire time. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So he goes on and he 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 keeps going through this dungeon. Um, basically he gets to near the end and this bobcat's back and he's like, you can't fool me, Jim, the human. He's like, I know where you might be. Very funny stuff. <laughs> and he's looking for him behind rocks before Finn's rescued for, by a guardian angel. And she's lifting him up and says, I'm going to take you to the, uh, the, the, the diamond of the crystal eye. I think it is before it's revealed that, nope, this is an evil woman who is going to eat his flesh and make him into a soup. And, Classic her, Maria Bamford. Yeah, her face turns crazy and gross, and they distort her voice in a really nice way that's very fucked up, um, <laughs> worthy of being in a horror movie. And she's like, I'm going to make little kids soup. And Finn, what's great about Finn is he was saying this whole time he's in his element, but even in this moment, he's not scared. He's like, that's how Jake says he likes to make his soup too. It's like, it's it's not, it's like the fear of this scene is tempered by his... Uh, his actions and then that's and then as he's going in that's where we see jake and they get out of there somehow and then princess and then they go to the the diamond and they take out the diamond and i don't you kind of at this point you're like oh yeah they're there for a diamond and they move the diamond and then all these eyes are coming out and they're very scary and then they're like fuck put the diamond back in and then <laughs> princess bubblegum comes through in her swan and saves them and, and is like what the fuck are you guys doing and and, and it is sort of just like yeah what are what was the point of this? Like, and then you're like, oh yeah, the, this was established that no one was supposed to go down there because it was very dangerous. And then Finn wanted to. And then all of a sudden you're like, this whole thing was a farce. Like, why did they ever participate in any of this? And um, it's funny. The whole crystal eye thing. It's, I mean, to me, it sounds like Indiana Jones and the crystal skull. Yeah. Right. The one that nobody liked. Um, but Indiana Jones is famous for being something that didn't need to happen. Yeah. Right? Like his whole thing in the first movie was he had had to prevent them from getting the arc, but then they get it anyway and it didn't matter because it killed them. Mhm. 
So the whole movie was pointless. Indiana Jones didn't do anything. It was like, yeah, nothing really happened in in this episode. They just they got to the end of the dungeon and there was no apparent prize for doing so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was more about the relationship between the characters, but the plot was pointless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. But yeah, but they did learn something about each other. Um and I also learned where the snail was. Can we play? All right, Nick, did you see the snail? Oh, yeah. Did you see the snail, Eric? No, I did not see the snail. Oh, ah, how about that? Well, it's been, a, se- it's been a second since we heard my song, I think, so let's get it going. Congratulations are in order, my friend Nick. You saw the snail. You're the greatest snail detective that I've ever known. You're the greatest snail detective of the episode. Congratulations to you, my Yeah, the song I, is a little bit longer. And I'd like forgotten how that song went. <laughs> Are you hinted you hinted at some mania? Let's let's hear it. So here's some some miscellaneous mania about the snail. Uh, I didn't see him, but I learned on the wiki page that for one of the only episodes, the snail does not have its signature smile. In fact, he is frowning, which is possibly due to him being stuck in an awkward situation. Now, I don't know what that awkward situation is. Could you tell me, Nick? <laughs> yeah, he's in the, the soup that this... Which lady is going to cook Finn and Jake in? Well, uh, that's as good as good a reason as any to not be smiling and waving. Not, that sounds like an have, awkward enough situation for me. Not having a good time. Yeah, I missed him. Um, shit. Yeah, he was bobbing in. He was bobbing in the soup. Yeah. Just, that was a special snail. I missed it. Yeah. <laughs> um, any other good mania that you're seeing? Uh, a lot of references in this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot seem to be pulled directly from Dungeons and Dragons, but also translate pretty well to video game classic RPG dungeon tropes, um, as usual, right? Like the treasure chest that turns into an enemy, right? The the door that has a mouth, you know, all these things are typical D and D and RPG tropes. Flaming flying eyeballs. That's yeah. another. <laughs> Classic kind of thing. I love those guys. <clears throat> nice. Yeah. And some, you know, uh, always, because this show's so great, there's some great connections to to other episodes in the series. Some of these, you know, the Guardian Angel comes back later. Some cool, some cool connections. 
nothing really worth diving too far into, I don't think. Yeah. Just a pretty typical dungeon episode. Cool. That was good. You know, now it's time to pick a new episode. I'm just going to get go ahead and guess we get another dungeon episode. Just based off how these random episode generations work, that just seems to be what I think is going to happen here. I've never called my shot before, but that's what I'm picturing here. <laughs> Let's find out. What are we going to watch next week? What are we going to watch? All right, we got episode 55, which is season three, episode three, Memory of a Memory. Ooh, do we get any, do they go into a dungeon? I don't know. <laughs> memory of a memory. Okay, cool. Well, we're, we're going to find out. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it's a dungeon episode. No, no, it's not. <laughs> I can see from the brief synopsis. I was wrong. Shit. Well, it's okay. It's a Marceline or Marceline or Marceline one, so that'll be fun. <laughs> I see Hun- Hunson Aberdeers in there too, so. Oh. We'll get them. All right. Anything else you want to say about the Mars Volta? Uh, um, <laughs> uh, no. Um, you know, I I disagree with your your rankings i you know i i'm a lot of people do i know i'm the odd one out in this opinion i'm dumbfounded by the nocturnicate is better than delouse but uh i I think it will i appreciate i I won't say that i like listening to nocturnicate more than i like listening to delouse but i think it's a more mature composition yeah i think it's hard for me to to divorce the time when i heard delouse um uh i i think that it's just such a great cohesive artistic statement that's just like one of the best prog albums ever one of the best rock albums of this short century i would say just checking all my boxes it it uh, it elicits a much stronger um emotional reaction from me in that record than a lot of their other records but francis the mute and scab dates probably do more and that's why I love those. I love, I love, I love them all though. That's why we went through that whole thing where I bought, I bought the box set. Um, and I love their forward thinking adventurous spirit. And I, I like that they don't make the same thing twice. So I, uh, I, I love it all. You know, I don't want to be a dead horse on them, but I, I always love that band. So I, it's, it's hard for me to be like, yeah, those, any of those, any of their albums suck because of where I come from, you know? But I appreciate right. your different. I appreciate I appreciate a good difference of opinion. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, we're about to wrap up. I I do want to uh, mention that we were going over some stats about how our podcast is doing, and it seems like a lot of uh, new listeners are coming to Adventure Guys for the first time, and it's going to be a while before they hit this episode because it seems like a lot of people are working their way up from the very beginning, which is really cool. But if you were one of those people that in August of 2021 found out about us and started listening, uh, wherever you are now uh, in your life, in <laughs> in the general timeline, uh, it would be super rad if you got on iTunes and left us a review, rated us, because 
I think we're doing okay on Spotify and some of the other places that people listen to podcasts, but we're not really coming up in searches on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Give us um, give us a rating. It would help. Out. Yeah, I think if we got some more ratings, uh, good ratings, especially, uh, we would have some better SEO, which is industry speak for search engine optimization. Oh, yeah. SEO, baby. Um, but yeah, uh, so even if you don't have an Apple device, I think you can like go on like a web browser and go to Apple Podcasts and and put in a rating there. I think I think that's possible. Or just steal your friend's iPhone for just a minute and and give us a rating on their iPhone. Yeah, I mean you sh- you should probably ask them for permission. Um and then you should explain what you want to do and then they'll probably if they are a good friend, they'll probably say okay. Yeah, who cares? Here you go. <laughs> if they say that you're not allowed to do that, maybe rethink the terms of your friendship with that person. I I don't want to Judge them, but that's, you know, just, just my opinion. <laughs> I would too. I support that. Uh, but yeah, that would help us out a lot. That would be super rad. And I know we say this boilerplate shit at the end of every episode for the most part, but it, it probably matters more than one might realize just with algorithms and bullshit like that. Uh, so yeah, please, 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 please. And thank you. Well, great chat today, Eric. See you later, listeners. And probably a week, judging as how this has been going. So (laughs) it'll it'll be good to talk to you then. All right. Peace out, y'all. Goodbye.